Welcome to the Consilience Podcast. My name is Shannon Beer and I talk to experts who can help us to overcome our insecurities and support our physical and mental health so that we can get the most out of our lives. Today I am joined by Roxy O'Rourke who is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education. Her research is focused on sport and mental health in athletes with disabilities and people with chronic health conditions. Now I'm really interested to chat with Roxy today because I know that one of her biggest passion projects is One Athlete, which is an initiative aiming to increase athlete autonomy in monitoring the signs of relative energy deficiency and signs of overtraining. And this is something that I've noticed with many of my clients struggling with giving themselves permission to rest and not necessarily being fully aware of the consequences or potential harm that comes with overtraining. And I think this is tied back to that sort of ingrained belief of overweight equals bad and unhealthy and anything else is okay. And we can challenge both of those sort of sides of that coin, but I think it would be great to learn a little bit more about how individuals can monitor these signs for themselves. And um, we're also gonna be discussing the importance of mental health as well in relation to either athlete development or also just our general well-being and how that relates to our physical activity and potentially our eating behaviors as well. So I thought it would be a good place to start by asking you why is it that you do the work that you do and how did you end up where you are? Yeah so thanks for having me. Um, I think I definitely and this is often the case within research uh, went on a winding path in order to end up where I am right now um, doing my PhD work. So um, I would say that everything I do comes back to own personal experiences, and that's something that really has helped me in finding my passion within the work that I do um, and why it kind of means so much to me and continues to motivate me. So I guess growing up, the goal was always medical school, as it often is within the science field. Um, you're kind of taught that that's kind of one of the main and only options of what to go into and aren't really exposed to the other possibilities. And I remember my mom always would kind of promote the idea of research or the potential of research growing up. Not, I wasn't anywhere close to kind of going into that yet, but she just always kind of brought up the idea and I always shut it down. I had this idea that research meant that you were stuck in a lab and that you weren't interacting with individuals, you weren't patient facing or person facing and um, you were kind of not on the front lines in terms of your involvement with the populations that you were working with. And so I just had this negative connotation of what research was and obviously hadn't been exposed to at the time the potential for what research could look like. And I also think that at the time I wasn't really fully understanding what my motivations were. So growing up, I had always had that dream of medical school, specifically working with individuals with cancer because I had own lived experience with that population. And so that was my motive at the time. And what I didn't realize was that more broadly, you could have that exposure to that population within other fields. And so getting into research within my undergraduate degree, I started initially working with Kelly Arbor Nicotopoulos uh, within the area of 
kind of broadly physical activity and mental health than working with kids and youth with disabilities. And I'd always had a passion of working with kids and youth. And so that kind of tied that all together. And I definitely was interested in it, but I don't think I, um, I hadn't found kind of my passion for or motivation for research at the time. And it was definitely a good exposure because I had the ability within that work to be involved in a physical activity program with kids and youth. And so I was on the front lines. I wasn't stuck in a lab and um, I was able to kind of see what research could be. And so then a year later, within the fourth year of my undergraduate degree, I ended up working with Dr. Catherine Zabiston um, in a different lab at U of T. And I was able to work with Annika Petrella and she was doing work specifically with populations with cancer. And so that kind of tied in the idea that I could have this exposure to the world of oncology and working with individuals with cancer within research and specifically within sport and mental health research, which wasn't something that I had even thought of at the time. Um, and so we, I worked with her on her PhD work and uh, developed a basketball and strength conditioning program for men with testicular cancer. And that to me really just sold me on the idea of research and my motives for wanting to stay within that area. Um, having that exposure to that population, but within a sport and exercise research environment kind of showed me that my passion for medicine wasn't necessarily going into medical school. It was the population specific nature of it. And that was what was drawing me to it. So being able to have that exposure within a research setting really sold me. But it was within the summer leading up to my master's and I was kind of continuing on the work that I had started with Annika during my fourth year of undergrad. I ended up working full time in Catherine Sabastin's lab, helping Annika kind of wrap up her studies. And it was that summer that kind of, I guess I had a turning point. Um, I still was interested in medicine, but I was going to per uh, pursue my master's and kind of see what happened after that. But that summer I found out uh, one of my best friends actually had passed away and I'll just put a trigger warning right now um, about eating disorders and mental health and mental illness. And so I was working in Catherine Sabiston's lab and um, one of my best friends from growing up had passed away from an eating disorder and depression. Um, and that to me just kind of, I mean, obviously was a huge kind of shock and it kind of threw me off course in terms of, uh, my work and what I was able to accomplish that summer and um, obviously had a lot of processing that I needed to do in relation to that. But that moment really kind of showed me that I wanted to continue within research because of the ability to have that change within populations and being able to have that patient facing you're on the front lines conducting the work within sport and mental health. Growing up, I was a dancer and that's how I knew this individual. And so um, the eating disorder and the mental illness was triggered by the dance environment that we grew up in. And it was something that, I mean, I experienced myself and there were a number of other individuals that also had eating disorders growing up that it wasn't talked about. We, and we all knew what was going on, but we would talk about it behind people's backs. So we would go into the change room and we would talk about the signs that we noticed in other girls that weren't in the change room. But it was never a talk that we had with the individual because we didn't know how to bring it up. It was never something that we approached parents or guardians about or our coaches or teachers. It was almost something that, I mean, at times we knew that parents were promoting it. And so it was this issue of a lack of education and that this environment just kind of fostered it. And so 
that moment finding out that not only is it something that can kind of alter your life in significant ways, it can lead to death. And that was just kind of a huge shock that pr prompted me to realize that my future was within research and really focusing on sport and mental health specifically. Um, I didn't really want to go the medical route anymore. I wanted to stay within that field because of my personal experiences and knowing that um, the work that I could do within the research field could really promote change and work to promote change within the field. Thank you for sharing. I think that your story really does highlight the importance of the work that you're doing and just how much of an impact it can really have. And it's interesting that you mentioned the environment that you grew up in being dance, you know, very appearance oriented, a lot of pressure, I'd imagine, to achieve a certain look which is part of the sport, but also not part of the sport in that it's supposed to be about dance, um, but it's a very aesthetic kind of driven sport. What was it, do you think, about the environment that really fostered that unhealthy attitude towards everyone's bodies in, in that environment? Because it really does speak to my experience working within the fitness industry whereby I think that there is a lack of awareness and a lot of brushing certain behaviors under the rug or even normalizing and sometimes endorsing these behaviors which aren't necessarily healthy but are hidden under the guise of you know a healthy lifestyle where we're so dedicated and super rigid actually about what it is that we're doing that probably isn't healthy in the end so I wonder what it was or what features of that environment you think really did have an impact yeah so I'd say I mean the studio I went to it 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 was this the motto of the studio was that everybody can dance and that everybody belongs in a dance atmosphere, which absolutely love, but that comes with the education that's needed. And so if you aren't fostering and constantly promoting that education and that positive and safe environment, then almost in a way that ignorance and that lack of education that comes alongside that motto is even more dangerous than a studio that doesn't have that motto um, and just kind of accepts the negative atmosphere that dance can be without that education that's being um, implemented. So I think that's where the danger really lies is that, and I, I mean, I know, I know within that environment, specifically the studio I grew up in, that it's still happening. There are still individuals who are experiencing it. And in some cases, parents are now more at the forefront in terms of actively providing that education and the recovery that's needed for those students, but sometimes it's being missed. And I think that a big part of it is kind of saying the environment is going to be one thing, but this ignorance that's coupled with it in terms of the education not being provided and there not being this consistent and implementation of kind of healthier um, aspects within that environment. And I think a big part of it comes from this long-standing notion that dance as an aesthetic sport, there's certain terminology that's used, there's certain aspects of the environment that foster this kind of drive to look a certain way. And that's not to say that studios are actively promoting that, but it's just this long-standing historical nature of how dance was developed. So if you think of studios 
typically always have mirrors at the front of the room that promote this appearance checking constantly throughout the class. And there's research on appearance checking being negative in terms of mental illness and developing issues with body image and disordered eating. And you stand in lines so that there's a front line and the people at the front are typically the stronger dancers and the ones at the back are kind of in the background and not in the foreground and typically I mean, some classes will prompt you to switch lines throughout the class, but it still promotes this hierarchy and this nature of competition, even in an environment that isn't necessarily a competitive dance studio, you still have that there. If you think of the terminology that's often used within dance, it's um, that landing was heavy or that was a loud landing and it's related to this concept of weight or jump as light as a feather. And so there's these words that are being used that are connected to weight. Even though you can have a heavier weight dancer that jumps as light as a feather, it still is related to this concept of weight. And so you have dancers across the spectrum in terms of weight that are being told that they are sounding heavy or loud when they're landing. And it's prompting this desire to undereat and not fuel themselves properly. And then I think, in line with that, there's this, because it's an aesthetic sport and there's a focus on what the body looks like, there's this ideal dancer in terms of what technique looks like. And so you think of perfect turnouts and you think of having a perfect arabesque in terms of the line that's created. And there's all that's been like, in terms of the aesthetic nature of it, you want certain techniques and certain styles to look certain ways. And there's this ideal, but not all bodies can actually get to that point. And it's not because of your weight, it's because of your bone structure and the length of certain muscles and the length of certain limbs. So certain dancers, I mean, you can't actually get to that gold standard in terms of what's been idealized as this perfect line and perfect form. But the thing that is promoted in terms of not actually promoted, but the thing that dancers then get in their minds and speaking from personal experience is the, what can you control in terms of that? You can't change your bone structure. You can't change the length of your muscles. You can change your weight if you adjust your eating habits and the amount that you're actually exercising. And so people then start exercising more and fueling less in order to have this kind of dream of getting to that perfect look, but then you never actually get there because you're not changing your bone structure. You're not changing the length of certain things. And so it's just this repetitive cycle of not getting to what you're dreaming of getting to. And so that malnourishing and not fueling cycle continues and it doesn't actually have an end point because you don't actually ever get to that point of what you think you can. So interesting because I'm spotting a lot of correlations between the dance environment and again the fitness industry as a whole. For example, the encouragement of body checking, you know, whether it's through the mirrors or whether it's through self-monitoring, if we're talking about weighing ourselves or taking progress photos, there's also that aspect of competition and comparisons. And that could potentially be endorsed by the fitness industry through before and after photos, or even if we're thinking about groups coaching programs it's actually very difficult to have a sort of foster a healthy environment within a group coaching program knowing that 
people are prone to make comparisons because it's a natural human tendency. And if we don't have the skill set to be able to evaluate our thoughts when we're comparing, then that can be potentially problematic. There's also the idea of the language that you're using. So you mentioned being light as a feather, which is supposed to relate to the movement, but very clearly implicates weight within that. And I think that can correlate to the way that we celebrate a client's progress you know is it oh congratulations you lost x amount of weight this week which again reinforces the idea that i am good and successful when my weight's going down and therefore if it's not going down that must be a bad thing there's also the ideal that's promoted so there's a certain look um, in terms of the technique that everyone's trying to achieve which may not be accessible to everyone depending on the natural features of their body in terms of just the way that they are built which some things as you say we genuinely don't have any control over and I think that's analogous to the ideal that's portrayed where you know health equals abs and that may not be achievable for everyone but because some individuals can and can maintain that and that's fine for them suddenly that becomes the standard for everyone and again if you're not achieving that standard in some way you must be lesser than so there definitely is a lot of overlap I think between sort of the core features of an environment that potentially does cause a little bit of harm and you mentioned that it can be down to a lack of awareness and the education piece is really important and that's what I've noticed again with the fitness industry is it's not necessarily that people are out to cause harm it's just genuinely oh this is the way that we've always done things and there is a lack of awareness so what might that education and implementation piece look like when it comes to fostering a healthier environment yeah I think um it's, that's a big question. I think broadly to start out, it needs to be feasible and acceptable within specific environments. And so that may mean that at in every geographic location, the education and training may be different. It may mean that at each dance studio and each gym and each fitness center in each coaching program that that training looks different because it needs to be something that is maintainable and feasible within each of those settings. So for some that may mean doing a coaching module at the beginning of every year and making sure that all coaches are like signing off on that, that it's a part of, I know um, Canada right now has safe sport requirements in terms of education at the beginning of the year within athletics and broader sport programs at the national level. And so maybe it's adding a module to that on mental illness and the different concepts to be aware of within those environments and how to handle if you notice signs and how to structure environments in a more positive way or in an accessible way so that everyone has what they need in order to be able to flourish within those environments. And part of what I'll be looking at for my PhD work, specifically with athletes with disabilities, so looking at high performance Paralympic settings is what will that training look like broadly within uh, looking at mental health and mental illness, but looking at the specific nuances of what are things to be aware of within those environments. So body image could be one of them. Um, and looking at eating disorders, disordered eating, noticing the signs. Um, and I'll be looking at the 
acknowledging both the athlete, but the coach perspective as well, in order to look at kind of feasibility of a program that could be implemented within those environments to have that education. So I guess at this point, not knowing what that looks like. And I know that there are educational programs that are available in different settings. A lot of the work that's been done within body image and coach education. And so part of my work within my dissertation will be kind of acknowledging from my own experience, the role that the athlete has within having that autonomy and being able to have that voice at the table in terms of what that training needs to look like for coaches, but also for athletes in order to open that line of communication. I mean, as I was saying, part of the issue was that we didn't know how to approach it. We, we knew the signs. And so you'd think and hope that the teachers would, were also noticing the signs. If you think of 10 year old girls being able to notice, um, you'd hope that the teachers were too. And then you also have parents that are a part of it as well when you have younger children that are um, at risk. And so it's bringing all components and stakeholders to the table and making sure that within that education piece that everyone's at the table, everyone has a voice in the training development, but also within the training itself to make sure that there is that open line of communication between all stakeholders at all times in order to say, I mean, I'm recognizing these signs. Are you noticing any signs at home? Or I'm an athlete and I've noticed that this is happening in the change room or that this person is exhibiting these signs. And so being able to just maximize lines of communication within kind of whatever that education does look like. Even if we're not sure quite what that education looks like, perhaps we are aware of some of the factors that may impede that line of communication. So why do you think it was difficult to have those conversations? Yeah, um, I think from my own perspective, it was this sense of embarrassment and not, I mean, at the time, I know things have improved over the last decade or so, but the stigma surrounding it and just, yeah, having that sense of embarrassment and not knowing how to approach the other athletes themselves. Um, I know personally, I also struggled with an eating disorder during that time, but I kind of was on, I felt like I was an outlier within that environment because I had binge eating disorder. And so you think of kind of the stereotypical dancer, you think about kind of eating disorders that result in losing weight. And I was on the other end of it. So I gained quite a bit of weight. And so I personally had this sense of embarrassment of not being able to talk about it myself because I had a feeling that I was the only one experiencing it. And I almost had this feeling as though I should be, I should have a different eating disorder, which is incredibly messed up to have those thoughts as a 14 year old girl. But yeah, it was almost the sense of, I knew what others were going through, but I also in a sense didn't. And I didn't feel as though I could approach them because I also was going through it, but couldn't own up to it in a way. Um, and I, I think a lot of the times parents played a big role in it in terms of, you think about the fact that we were constantly on the go needing to be fed meals in the car. Parents were often the ones cooking the meals and dishing up the serving sizes and, um, I was lucky in the sense that I had very supportive parents and parents that were not fostering that underweight mentality and underfueling mentality. So I was fed appropriately in terms of the fuel needed. And it was outside of what I was being fed that I was then kind of buying food and binging on my own. And it was, I 
actually had the support of my parents in terms of my mom recognized and my mom had a feeling and she approached me on multiple occasions and asked me if I had an eating disorder and I constantly denied it. And it got to the point where she was taking me to doctor's appointments, trying to figure out what was going on in terms of my weight gain and having me go to the family doctor and having conversations about it. And I never admitted it, not once. And so I think for me, it was this sense of embarrassment because I felt like I was an outlier. I couldn't own up to it myself, but also I didn't in a way have a full understanding of what others were going on, what was going on with others because they were experiencing a different eating disorder. Um, and I think because in a sense, we recognized it as athletes and the fact that we knew the signs and we were kids at the time recognizing the signs, we had this feeling of, well, our coaches, our teachers are supposed to be adults that are a safe space for us. These are supposed to be individuals that are taking care of us. We spend more time at the dance studio than we do at our own homes. So in a sense, it was just kind of this feeling of why aren't they doing anything? And maybe they are, but likely they aren't, but it's not our role to speak up. It's not, it, it almost felt like we were like tattletaling if we went to a teacher and told them that something was going on in the change room. And so, yeah, I guess in a sense, it was this fact that, I mean, if we were able to recognize it, why weren't the coaches? Why weren't the teachers? Um, and why weren't they saying anything? Mm, yeah, I think that experience of shame and embarrassment is very common. And we know that shame, like being a self-conscious emotion, it promotes the withdrawal. You know, you don't want to approach, you don't want to tell anyone about how you're feeling because you feel like there's something wrong with you and even though you were aware that there were other individuals struggling with eating disorders for some reason you didn't have the right kind of eating disorder and therefore it was a barrier for you to be able to share your experience and potentially get help for that and that's definitely something that I've seen in practice as well is a lot of people even not on like the side of eating disorders but just struggling with their nutrition in general feel like they quote unquote should be able to feed themselves like an adult I really hate that that term really frustrates me but I understand where that's come from in the sense of well there's this you know sense that everyone else has their shit together so why don't I kind of thing and I think that that's such an unfortunate belief because of the impact that it has and that it you know really does make you think there's something wrong with you as an individual not even just that oh I struggle with this one aspect it's like no me as a person I am wrong and um yeah we've, we've spoken about how that really impacts someone's ability to to get help so what changed for you yeah, I think, well, I think just kind of building on that also, for me, I got to a point where I was able to recognize it was an issue. And there were points along the line that I knew something was off, but it also is for many, it's a sense of control. And so you feel out of control. And so when you're able to control your fuel intake, it gives you that sense of control and that you you are getting to that point of being in control of your life and being in control of all aspects outside of fueling, even though it is solely related to the fuel that you're putting in your body. And so I think for many growing up, even though we were able to recognize the issue in others, for many, it wasn't a point of coming forward because 
the more they monitored their fuel intake, the more they felt in control, even if it was in an unhealthy way. And so I think for some that may have kind of been the issue in terms of not coming forward is that at the time you don't think it's an issue. Like the more you are controlling your intake of fuel, the more you have that sense of control. And so um, there's a sense of not just denial, but just this sense of lack of clarity at the time in terms of there actually being an issue deep down. Um, for me, I'd say, I mean, I had my eating disorder for around eight years. Um, so quite a long time in terms of um, getting help for that. And I would not advocate the route I went in terms of not getting help. Um, I kind of went about it independently because I did have that huge sense of guilt. And as someone who now works within the area, I know that that's not advised. Um, but for me, I, so I actually, I was injured um, within the later years of high school and took some time off from dance. And so I developed my eating disorder when I was dancing. And then when I stopped dancing, it just kind of promoted it and um, it made it kind of more of an issue. Um, and I, then um, I moved away for undergrad and went to uh, British Columbia for the first few years of my undergrad and it continued to um, be an issue there. And I think it almost aggravated it in a sense of I was in a new environment um, with new individuals who didn't know kind of the old me. And so I was able to kind of adapt to the new me um, who was not fueling properly and healthily. And, and um, that just kind of became my norm. Um, and within that time, I stayed out of the dance environment. And so I was not within kind of, which for me could have been healthy in terms of I wasn't in kind of a body checking environment and um, something that could have promoted perhaps other eating disorders um, later down the line. But I took some steps back away from uh, dance at the time, just because it was such an unhealthy environment for me. And um, it was, when I transferred to U of T, I still was struggling quite a bit, but I think it leaned more towards the sides of disordered eating rather than binge eating disorder. And um, I, at U of T, I became healthier in terms of my overall mental health. And um, I'd been struggling also with anxiety and depression earlier on. And so I think that kind of really decreased in terms of symptom severity when I transferred to U of T and just was in a healthier environment for me overall university wise. Um, but it was really within that summer between undergrad and my master's when I found out the news about my friend that I just kind of had this instantaneous moment of it's deadly, like, and a personal moment of that realizing that I needed to figure out what was going on in my own life, but also this moment of if you don't help yourself, you can't help others. And so you need to put your own health first, get yourself sorted out. And then once you're in a healthy state, help others. And so I, um, I actually, I stayed out of that sport environment for a bit and just kind of worked on fueling, which I think is a big part of it, just kind of removing yourself from an active state and working solely because you can, there is that inherent connection between fuel and movement. And in order to get the fuel sorted out, I think not having that energy expenditure within a movement-based environment is key. Every individual will kind of have their own perspective on that, but I think it's important just to kind of at a state of rest and recovery, be able to figure out control over nutrition. And then from there, 
work towards adding activity back into your life. And so um, once I kind of got a hold on um, my nutrition, I got into running, which was huge for me. My family motivated that. And um, it now is my primary form of activity. Um, I would call myself a runner over a dancer um, now. So that definitely helped me in terms of um, focusing on a sport that wasn't appearance motivated um, and aesthetic and being able to focus on my body's capabilities and my strength rather than what my body looked like. Um, and since then I've been able to actually go back into the dance environment as a teacher, um, specifically at my old studio, which I guess wasn't always a positive experience for me even as a teacher, but prior to the pandemic, I worked there for a couple of years and I guess my focus when I was there was really doing what I could in terms of my own teaching and my interaction with the senior students and being that resource for them. And I did within that have a number of students that approached me during that time and um, asking for help for a friend. And so um, I definitely think that there is still work that needs to be done, but that kind of prompted my own wanting to go back into the environment and just see what it was like and whether things had changed and see what I personally could do. It really does speak to the importance of having a sense of urgency when it comes to the decision to make a change. And that's definitely something that I've observed is that even though there are some clear consequences in terms of you know, people can recognize that this restriction is causing them a little bit of distress or is holding them back in some way or even having an impact on their physical health. There is still such a huge barrier to letting go of that because of the benefits that one experiences from controlling their food intake. And I think that's something that's really important to acknowledge because if we perceive something to a be a benefit that speaks to a need you know why is that control a good thing for this person you know what do they really really truly need and how can we satisfy that need in a healthier way that then frees up the space for them to let go and work on establishing a healthy relationship with food and their body and exercise and it's great to hear that you found a form of exercise that is really enjoyable for you. So I think that that's a huge part of this puzzle as well, which I think transitions nicely into the work that you're doing with one athlete. So I mentioned at the beginning that this is an initiative that's aimed to help athletes with the education and the tools for them to monitor the signs of overtraining and um, red S. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more maybe we could start by some of the consequences of overtraining because again I think it's very easy to convince ourselves that well exercise is healthy therefore more must be better yeah so um I guess the work with one athlete um I'll preface this by saying we're on a little bit of a hiatus right now over the last few months just um, with other things in our lives having to take priority um but we're currently working on getting back into it um, I would say Austin Forbes is really kind of the brain behind it all in terms of the initiative itself. And so Austin comes from a triathlon background competing at the national level. And it was this idea of overtraining and relative energy deficiency syndrome really being kind of 
at the forefront, but not in a way. Um, and similar to my own experiences with mental illness within the dance environment, it was prominent within the environment that Austin was growing up in, but it wasn't something that was actively addressed and educated on. And so, and if it was something that was, there was awareness of, it was often at the coach level and the athletes then were left kind of in the dark in terms of education on it. And so relative energy deficiency syndrome, if we kind of look at the history of it and think of the female athlete triad, which um, I had lots of experience of within the dance environment where you think of a lost period or late start to having your period, think of kind of decreased bone density um, and losing weight. And so that kind of, there was the shift to realizing that overtraining and energy deficiency syndromes can happen in athletes of all sexes. And so it's not something that's restricted to just a female. And so there's this recognition now of it being something that can be experienced by all, but it's still not something that is actively educated on. Um, and so physiologically, you'd have some of those signs such as within a female recognizing that you lost your period um, or kind of increased time between cycles. Um, so fewer cycles per year, you have that decreased bone density. So oftentimes stress fractures um, are a outcome of it. You also, a big thing in terms of what I look at is psychologically, um, what are the things that can come alongside that? And so definitely eating disorders, disordered eating, if you're not fueling your body properly. And I mean, it comes from this overtraining. And so if you are exerting too much energy and you're not intaking enough in order to fuel yourself properly, then you have an energy deficiency. And so um, disordered eating and eating disorder can actually cause it, but can also be kind of an outcome of it as well. And so within one athlete, what um, the idea was, was that it all came from this sense of there needs to be this increased sense of athlete autonomy. So if you have coaches that are developing programs for athletes, if you have coaches that are telling athletes what they should be eating and how much they should be working out and exerting their bodies, if the athlete has signs of a condition and they don't know what those signs are and they aren't able to recognize them, or if they don't know what this condition is and aren't able to then backtrack and think, oh, I have the signs and symptoms, it could be red S or it could be overtraining, then the athlete isn't able to advocate for themselves within the sporting environment. And so it came from this idea of wanting to increase athlete autonomy and recognizing those signs and symptoms and to be able to say, hey, you want me to do a long run today. You want this to be my next training cycle to their coach and say, you know what, my body physically right now is not able to do that. And so the concept is, is to develop this app so that athletes are able to monitor their training, monitor their sleep, monitor their fuel intake and monitor kind of what their risk is for overtraining and relative energy deficiency. And then just be able to have that autonomy and communicating with their coaches. And it could be that coaches have access to the app and that athletes are able to input their information and their coaches are able to see it and say, you know what, maybe we dial back this block. Or it's the fact that athletes don't want their coaches to have access to it. It 
we want it to be up to the athlete so that it's the athletes able to say, you know what, I'm comfortable sharing this information so that they're able to adjust my cycle accordingly. They're able to adjust the training that I'm doing and kind of the energy exertion that they want me putting into this training block. Or it's for athletes to say, you know what, I want to monitor my own symptoms and my own training and my own health. I want to be in full control and I will speak up if something's going on. Um, and so that's kind of where the initiative and motivation for one athlete came. Um, and so we got pretty far into it in terms of developing what the app could look like. And we're validating a questionnaire so that um, the information that is being input by athletes into the app comes from a validated source. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where we're at in terms of it. We're looking at, um, we're partway through kind of piloting the questionnaire and working on that validation. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it comes back to that athlete autonomy piece and really making sure that athletes are educated, but also that athletes have control. This is great because it seems like you're endorsing a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of the coach and athlete relationship whereby it's not just about hey I'm the coach here's what you need to do but you're acknowledging the importance of autonomy and the understanding that well the athlete is the only one who truly knows how their body is feeling they're the one that's living that and experiencing that and not to mention they have a life outside of their sport which can have an impact on their readiness to to train on a given day so giving the autonomy to the athlete is empowering and also probably the most conducive to quote-unquote optimal performance anyway if we're talking about about the ability to auto-regulate. So not only would it be helpful for their, their sport, but of course their, their mental health in general. And you mentioned the word flourishing, and I would love to get your perspective on what that really means to you. Something that I promote with my coaching is flourishing health, which is sort of the intersection of physical, social, psychological, overall well-being. And I think we may be inspired by the same researcher in that I first came across this concept. I think it was Keyes talking about the difference between languishing, which is where you're just kind of a bit meh, you know, meh, things are okay, but could be better, to flourishing. So what does flourishing mean to you and how has that sort of trickled into your research? Yeah, so um, I mean, different people define mental health and mental illness in different ways. And so it really, I mean, there is no right answer when it comes to research, um, which often makes it difficult. But um, yeah, so Keyes looks at mental health and mental illness along two different continuums. So you have mental illness and mental health and kind of if you think of it, kind of create an intersection um, along the middle. And so when it comes down to it, someone can be mentally healthy but also have a mental illness at the same time. Um, and it can range from having high levels of a mental illness to low levels of a mental illness. Um, but within kind of the mental health continuum, you can range from languishing to flourishing. Um, and so someone can be languishing, but have low levels of mental illness or high levels of mental illness. And someone can be flourishing and truly when it comes down to it, I kind of think of the word thriving. And so someone can be thriving and have high levels of flourishing, but also coexist having high levels of a mental illness at the same time. 
Um, and so, yeah, within Keys' continuum or dual continuum model is what um, he refers to it as. Flourishing is really the sense of overall well-being when it comes down to all of the different aspects, like you mentioned, like physical, emotional, social, and just, yeah, at the end of the day, when I think of one word that kind of correlates to the term flourishing, I would say thriving. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a huge thing in terms of physical activity and the sport research world is kind of acknowledging that you can focus on mental health and this overall sense of flourishing in individuals who have mental illness. And it's not this sense of we need to eliminate or get rid of the mental illness and we need to focus on that in order to then focus on being healthy. But you can have individuals who have a diagnosed mental illness that are able to, and I mean, within the work I've done, are able to, through physical activity, and increasing physical activity levels in a safe, positive, healthy environment are able to build and work on their mental health while coexistingly having a mental illness. I think it's really important to acknowledge the impact that physical activity can have on our mental health because surely that's enough of an initiative to sort of encourage exercise or as a as a reason for exercise whereas in the fitness industry it's very much like fat loss oriented like oh you know let's shape your body through resistance training or let's we have you know set a arbitrary step target to increase your needs you're burning more calories it's like but given just how impactful physical activity can be on our overall well-being, why is that not enough to sell your services? The fact that somebody could be thriving, you know, more in their life, isn't that a worthy focus? Yeah, I mean, so I would say that recognizing physical activity and the benefits it can have is important, of course, but that it needs to be a safe and healthy environment. So for me growing up, physical activity had detrimental impacts and it did within my friends as well. And so it definitely has its positives. And I think a lot of the work that we do within sport and exercise psych is kind of pushing for and advocating for physical activity and saying, hey, if you increase your minutes of physical activity, it could result in this or it could correlate with this. And I think that's great. But when it comes down to it, needing to remember as kind of people that advocate for physical activity that it that isn't always the case depending on the structure of the environment and that's kind of a big thing i've had with that term or phrase that uh physical activity researchers often use exercise as medicine mm -hmm. it it sometimes isn't and so it's kind of recognizing that a safe and positive and accessible environment is one that kind of will have those correlated impacts um or um kind of coexisting impacts within mental health. And so I think that's one thing, but I think it's also important to recognize that different people will have different motives for being active. And that if someone's motive for being active is to lose weight or to shape their body in a certain way, then that's okay. And it's it there needs to be this recognition and this communication between that individual and their coach or whoever, whatever stakeholders are involved within their experience within activity that fosters that motivation in a healthy way. And so you can have a healthy experience within physical activity and one that contributes to flourishing mental health 
and still be motivated by weight loss or still be motivated by strength gain or whatever it may be. And if, if it's an appearance related motive versus a capacity and body related motive, you can still have that flourishing mental health as an outcome, as long as it's motivated and there is this healthy environment um, in a supportive way from their coach and whatever other stakeholders are involved. So I think it's being open and honest about motives to be active, but also then if it maybe isn't one that's stereotypically a healthy motive to be active, it's as a stakeholder, so as a coach, as an instructor, whatever it may be, it's kind of working on that mindset and not changing it. So the motives can still stay the same, but it's kind of shaping it to be a healthier mindset still with the same goals. Absolutely. I think it really is important to acknowledge that pretty much like the large majority of people are motivated by appearance changes or the potential for appearance changes. And that can be okay as long as coaches are equipped with the tools to sort of recognize when that may be detrimental and to be able to shape those motivations to make them healthier and more sustainable over time. And I think that's where we're really sort of lacking at that moment is with the understanding of how we can do that. And I think it does begin with the acknowledgement that, you know, there is more to exercise than that there is this potential there so how can we sort of tap into that potential and work with an individual given their current motives which make a lot of sense in our current day environment so how do we navigate all of that and really seek to promote sort of safe accessible and sustainable engagement with physical activity it is such a shame that there is you know it has all of this potential in terms of just how life enhancing it can be but also all of this potential danger as well that the harms that it can cause and I do think that as a whole we aren't really sort of equipped to navigate that sufficiently and that's why we do see sort of these issues so it really is great to see that there is this uh, endorsement of these initiatives because there is a clear need for them with all of that said what's sort of next for you what are you focusing on right now yeah so um I guess academically uh working on my dissertation so I'm currently writing up my proposal and um, it kind of has taken shape over the last few months in terms of its focus on um, developing a coach athlete education resource specific to mental illness and mental health and recognizing kind of within athlete development, there's a lot of focus on how to healthily and effectively develop athletes to a high performance level, focusing on the physicality of it. And so acknowledging that there's kind of a gap within looking at athlete development models within mental health and mental illness and kind of finding where does mental health and mental illness fit in within athlete development models. And then from there, working with coaches and athletes to develop an educational resource that uh, will then kind of look at the feasibility of it and acceptability of it within those populations, specifically looking at kind of high performance athletes with physical disabilities and yeah, going from there. So that's what's next for that. And then one athlete, we're hoping to kind of get back into it um, and hit the ground running in terms of next steps there with validating the questionnaire and getting things moving. 
Amazing. And if anyone listening is interested on keeping up to date with your work, where would be the best place to sort of learn more and to stay in touch? Yeah, um, research-wise, I'd say ResearchGate and LinkedIn are kind of the best bets um, there. And social media-wise, um, One Athlete um, has an Instagram, which I believe is one um, spelt out O-N-E underscore athlete, um, where that can be kept up to date. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective and your knowledge with us today. I think it's been really insightful and really helpful as well, touching on a lot of important issues. So I just wanted to thank you for your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Consilience podcast. If you found this episode helpful and you know someone who also would benefit, then please do share this episode with them. And if you're looking for more support, check out my coaching, mentoring and educational offerings by looking at my website, which is linked in the show notes. Until next time.